Hi, I'm Chris from Indianapolis. I'm Jeff from Oakland. I'm Maggie from Los Angeles. The Sound of Young America is produced independently. And supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org. Slash donate. You'll be glad you did. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Samantha B. She's now the Daily Show's senior, senior correspondent, having uh, become the longest tenured correspondent on that show. She started in 2003. She's also the author of a brand new book of, uh, well, while she won't call them memoir, it's uh, memoirish recollections, essays on her life called I Know I Am, But What Are You? Let's take a listen to Samantha B on The Daily Show. For more on how progressivism is a cancer on American society, we go to Samantha B reporting live from the alternate universe where America was saved from the scourge of progressivism. <laughs> Samantha B, thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. I'm here at Yellowstone National Tire Fire. I'm sorry. In your universe, I believe it's known as Yellowstone National Park. <laughs> and, and Sam, I, I don't mean to, I know mm-hmm. you're in the yes. progressive list universe, but what, what, about, what about the beard? Where's oh. the <laughs> All the ladies have them. <laughs> Once we said no thanks to the government telling pharmaceutical companies they couldn't dump experimental drugs in the water supply, the kind that give women beards. So in the, in the world you're in, no income tax? No Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. never existed. No Woodrow Wilson, no national parks, no antitrust laws. It's pretty f- fun. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I know that probably gets bleeped in your universe. So oh. ev- everybody there is pretty happy. It's, it's... And how? No taxes to pay for police or fire departments? You get to keep all your money that you make from the factory that's owned by the guy that also owns the town and the store. You know, the factory you've worked at since you were five. Samantha, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so it's much. It's a pleasure to have you. It, it, from having read this book, it sounds, like, um, it sounds like you had one of the most unusual domestic arrangements as a childhood. <laughs> and I say this as a native of San Francisco, where unusual domestic uh, arrangements were sort of the currency of my childhood. I am so flattered by that. That is so sweet. <laughs> Describe the three different living situations that you, that you had as a kid, sort of semi-concurrently. Right. Well, uh, my parents were teen parents. They were, you know, high school parents. Um, so uh, they split up early. It was a disaster. That was just probably something that never should have happened. Um, so I was living, I really lived with my grandmother most of the time. And then I split the difference between my parents um, you know, in my grandmother's off hours, my mother lived in this in in crazy circumstances, and my father lived very conventionally with his new wife. So I was always kind of being shuttled from place to place, and each place was so I had such a completely different identity in each of the different homes that I lived in. I probably was my most natural self at my grandmother's, but it was very. I never, I really didn't know who I was. Although I will say that I don't think it's an unusual story. I think a lot of people live that way, don't you? Well, three is more, is 50% more than most. Uh, pr- 
perhaps a little more than most. <laughs> perhaps. Tell me about those different identities. I remember growing up with my parents' divorce. My parents also divorced when I was very yes. young. And, you know, I had a reasonably happy childhood. But uh-huh. um, I-, I remember one time when my dad was really upset at-, at me when I was an adolescent. He was upset at me because I was talking like my mom. Like when oh. I was at my mom's house, I would adopt her manner of speech. And when sure. I was at my dad's house, I would adopt his manner of speech. Oh, that's great. I, I wonder oh, how great. you changed between these environments. Well, my mother's my mother was very bohemian. And she really didn't have any kind of concern about keeping childhood intact. She just didn't really have a philosophy about keeping a child a child. So she was very free with free-flowing with ideas about sexuality and learning about sex education and learning about, you know, mostly about sex. <laughs> Let's be honest. It was all about Some sex. Wiccanism. And, and Wiccanism as well, you know. Um, and my, my father was very conservative. So he, you know, he had, he had taken another bride let us say. And they both um, just really believed in, in preserving childhood innocence forever. So, you know, no potty language. And it was very, um, they were very straight laced about things. Like they were very concerned with me learning how to ride a bicycle, you know, which I never really did learn how to do because my other circumstances really just did not allow for that. But they wanted me to do all the kind of normal childhood things that you're supposed to do. And I had no a concept of that, you know, spending time with my mother and then spending time with my grandmother, who was basically an old lady. So I was very old ladyish <laughs> when I was with my grandmother. Very old ladyish, very into carrot muffins, <laughs> Liz Claiborne fashions. <laughs> and then I would go to my dad's, and he would want me to go fishing. It's <laughs> bizarre. And then with my mother, it was all about you know sexuality and learning the term golden showers. Your mom was, as we mentioned, a practicing Mm -hmm. Wiccan and a bit of a a free spirit. That Mm -hmm. free spiritedness included at a relatively young age, introducing you not only to the birds and the bees, but some of this sort of uh, multivarious variations on uh, birds and bees activities. It was sorted. It was completely sorted. I would not elect to teach my young children about sex the way that I was taught about it. But that's okay. I survived. I have a great breadth of knowledge in the perverse <laughs> arts. Um. <laughs> you were basically handed, like, I, yes, when you imagine me... some, a child being handed a document about mm-hmm. sex and sexuality, yes. it's, it's you, you usually imagine a sort of clinical description of the process of conception. Yes, yes. And with, you know, with really kind of benign illustrations and that sort of... I mean, I have heard stories. Certainly, we had the joy of sex in our house, too, but it was so benign compared to what, you know, compared to the other stuff that I had seen that I was like, oh, this is boring. You know, but I know that I had friends who their parents had a copy of it and it was way up high on the bookshelf or turned around so that you couldn't see the spine and then you would bring it down when your parents were out and look at all the pictures with the people with all the pubic hair. <laughs> it was very <laughs> delicious and weird and crazy and scary. But my mom actually, I was I was about seven and she gave me a book, a very explicit book, which was really a literally a glossary of sexual terms of 
terminology for everything, for all the fetishes, you know, the the regular everyday, the workaday sex terms <laughs> as well, but also, you know, the, the the fetish, the fetishes and all of that stuff. And um, she just, I was an avid reader at when I was quite young, so I read the whole thing and then just had question after question after question and continue to have questions <laughs> to, to this to this very day but um it was certainly it certainly made me popular on the playground you're, or you're really, un, and then unpopular shortly yeah it's it's this it's the sort of thing that um has a certain currency at some point and then uh there comes a point where maybe it's uh People grow it's tired. weird or upsetting. It's upsetting to other children, to the other children who don't know what you're talking about. They don't want to know about, you know, they, they're still getting over the idea of French kissing. Or they're just <laughs> learning about that. Um, and we had a lot of pornography in the house as well. You also described that right around the same time that your mother handed you this uh, sex glossary, um, she also just sort of liberated all the pornography in the home. Yeah. She was like, mm-hmm. well, you know. Here we go. Let's just put it out. It's fine. It's just, they're just movies. Um, (laughs) She was just not at all, it was not a problem for her. And she used to have, you know, we would, it was the 70s though, you know, they would have dinner parties. She and her boyfriend would have dinner parties and then they would just sort of watch a porn after the dinner party. It was kind of like during dessert. They were like, should we put on, should we put on a porn? Anyone? Yeah, okay. And they didn't even really watch it. I mean, they would just sort of sit and chat and smoke and eat a key lime pie or whatever they were eating. <laughs> and it would sort of play in the background, you know. Um, I will say that I tried to I tried to locate the book. When I was writing this book, I, I asked my mom if she still had that glossary um, because I thought it would just be so great if I could find it. And um, she was lamented the fact that she had lost it. Now... In sort of direct contrast to this, your your father had uh, uh, remarried and entered what we might think of as a very conventional relationship, where one of your sort of as you describe it, very loving stepmother's um, primary goals was to kind of normalize yeah, you. Yeah, well, they were very concerned about me. I was not like I mean, my stepmother was. She had a lot of brothers and sisters. She had a very conventional upbringing. You know, children were one way. Adults were another way. You didn't speak about adult things in the presence of children. I'm not sure. You know, I I just don't know anything about that kind of arrangement, (laughs) 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 having never lived that way. So um, it was very foreign to me to have people speak in whispers about important subjects and have, you know, different topics of conversation to be off limits, um, particularly pertaining to any kind of sexuality or anything like that. Did you ever watch SCTV? Uh, sure, yeah. Remember the character uh, Lola Lola Heather, Heatherton? What, I can't remember the... I can't remember her ex- exact name, but she was um, she was a Catherine O'Hara character, and she was a very audacious performer. Um, they would actually not allow me to watch her. They, because I, I, I watched SCTV. I mean, all the time. It was always on at dinner time, and whenever she came on, if I was at their house, they would turn the TV off. They were like, "This is a bit much. This is a bit much for a young mind." <laughs> Meanwhile, I mean, all this other crazy stuff was going on. My mom, for a, for a short time, she worked at um, she worked at a, a gay newspaper in Toronto called The Body Politic. <laughs> 
It might as well be like a bar called the Manhole. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And uh, she certainly had many friends who worked there as well, and they would come over and they would just have like really frank discussions around the dinner table about their conquests, which were daily. I mean, really, it was, you know, that was at the time, you know, at the Y in Toronto, the downtown Y was just a big, it was really just a big bathhouse with some exercise <laughs> on the side. <laughs> So, you know, you <laughs> if you weren't interested in having sex with somebody, it was not recommended for you to take a shower. <laughs> there was probably no water, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> so they would just come over and talk about all this stuff. And it was just it, it was it was great, actually, because uh, my mind was certainly very open at a young age. Um but when you contrast that to going to my father's house and how everyone was just it was like whispers. Um, meanwhile, you're spending a, a lot of your time with your grandmother yes. and your grandmother seems very, uh, I guess I would say grandmotherly. She was, she was in, in many ways, very grandmotherly, but she was also kind of sassy. There was a sass about her. She, you know, she worked for a living when she was divorced, you know, she was separated from her husband. She worked for a living. So she, there was a sass to her. She was kind of a... A career gal in she her did, circle of friends. She did send you to gym class in some kind of sweater dress. She'd sent me, she dressed me like a granny. There's no question. When you look back at pictures, you can't believe I'm a child. It's like a child's head just <laughs> photoshopped onto a granny's body. She, we, yeah, she made me go to gym class in a one piece sweater tart with a belt. Who sends their child? All the other children were in regulation <laughs> shorts and t shirts. I practically, if she could have sent me to gym class in high heels, like in slingbacks, she totally would have. She was did not approve of running shoes at all. Just slim Italian, you know, slingbacks and so forth. After a break, more with Samantha B. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of the sound of young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Daily Show correspondent, Samantha B. Her new pseudo-memoir is called I Know I Am, But What Are You? It traces her upbringing between three different households, her mother's, her father's, and her grandmother's. How did you negotiate these three, like, so, such completely different was, worlds? Like, was, was, was there one where where you were at home, or did you have to sort of change your, you know, change I your did. manner depending on what bed you were sleeping in that night? I definitely did. But I was the most myself. I think I was the most myself at my grandmother's house because we talked frankly with each other, and she didn't approve of how either... She really didn't approve of how my mother lived and really didn't approve of my father at all. So, um, but I still, I still had to go. And at one point I actually, I had to finally stop living with my grandmother. I was, it was court ordered that I stop living with my grandmother <laughs> and choose one of my parents. So I had to literally select which parent that I wanted to live with. Oh, geez. Yeah, it was, t it, that was hard. But um, I chose my mother because I just sort of knew her better and but still my grandmother was always 
she was all she she actually worked at the school that I attended, so she made my lunch every day. My mother was not capable of doing that, um, and uh, she kind of kept me, she kind of kept me clothed and together. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's all okay though. I mean, I don't really mean it to sound like a. It's not a. It's not at all a sad story because, as strange a set of circumstances as it was, they, they, my parents always loved me. They just didn't know what to do with me. They just had no idea. They had no idea what they were doing. It was adorable in retrospect. Was there a point where you were able to figure out what to do with you? Like, was it going away to college? Or was there some point in your life where you felt like you were able to get some solid footing? Well, it really did take a long time, actually. I, I think back, and there is a story in the book, too, about how I stole cars for a living for, you know, quite some time and and was sort of uh, nefarious, vaguely. But <laughs> I think that I didn't really have a good... I, I really didn't have a good sense of uh, myself until I hit my late 20s, I would say. I kind of... Fl- I floated. My sense of ethics was kind of... It was, it was a... It, it was a bit free flowing. I wouldn't say that it was. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it was clear that the line in the sand was clearly drawn for me ever, and, until I until I kind of hit my late twenties, early thirties. I really didn't see things in very black and white terms. Everything was just very gray for me. So I could, you know, it was good in some ways and bad in other ways. And now I, I think I, I have a more clarity as a person. Uh, but that didn't come until much later in life. Did something change? Was there some kind of inciting incident? Um, I I think I just really started hanging around with people who had a better sense of themselves, quite honestly. I, I met, J- J- for one thing, I met my husband, Jason, in my late 20s. And my grandmother died when I was 27. and uh, And that kind of brought everything into focus for me. I'm not sure, I'm not really sure why it happened when it happened, but I'm certainly very glad that it did, because I really couldn't have lived the other way uh, forever. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, your life when you first met your husband, Jason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to look up this thing called CNE. uh, Oh, Oh, yes. The Canadian National Expo. Mm, exhibition, exhibition, Canadian national exhibition. Yes, yes. Um, this is a this is kind of like a it's sort of like a state fair here yes. in the United States. Yes, it's a it's a fall fair in Toronto, and um, it sounds so, sometimes when people down here talk about it, they're like, "No, that's the Canadian national." The National Exhibition, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it really, it's just really, it's most dreadful. <laughs> it's dreadful. It's a fall fair. I mean, everything is served on a stick. Nothing is, you know, it's, the rides just, it's just carnies and food on a stick. It's and food on some, a stick and the band sticks. And, yeah, and sticks music. It's not something to be... It's not laudable. You and Jason were uh, performing in this thing yes. in a sort of tribute show. I, you know, uh-huh. I, had the, I had the comedian uh, Maria Bamford on uh, the show uh-huh. a, a year or two ago, and we talked a little bit about one of her formative experiences, which okay. was acting as, uh, uh, I think it's called a Bajoran 
from, oh. s- from Star Trek in a <gasps> traveling Star Trek expo. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. That played like malls and stuff. Did I don't know where the demand the is for this did, show. Did she have to learn the language? She did, and she learned the backstory. And, yeah. um, and, yeah. and you did something at this CNE mm-hmm. that, that's very similar, which is you pl- you portrayed a character from... The anime series Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon. Yes, yes. I was Sailor Moon, actually. I mean, if you're going to be in a live-action tribute to an anime cartoon, you might as well be the star of it. That's true. I was Sailor Moon. (laughs) And Jason was my love interest. Tuxedo Mask. That's how we met. (laughs) Yes, it's a wonderful day. It's so romantic. Between that and the working in an illegal casino and the uh, working in an erectile dysfunction clinic, Mm -hmm. um, you basically you basically hit back to back to back home runs for um, talk show stories for when that segment producer asks you what was the worst job you had when you were an aspiring actor. It's really hard for me to decide. It's so difficult (laughs) to choose. Everyone's got one that they can kind of highlight, but honestly, I've had such a string of them. I can't even, I can't select which one was the worst. Although I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change any of it. I certainly wouldn't go, I wouldn't go back and not do those jobs, but perhaps I would have performed as Sailor Moon as a younger person. I don't know that it's really (laughs) all that dignified to be playing a cartoon character when you are almost 30. I don't think that's the story people want to hear from me. I feel like there are so many, you know, I I get this all the time, you know, kind of young women who want to hear about my glorious path to the Daily Show and, um, you know, how much I how I went to a great school and and learned so much and then interned here. And, you know, this like (laughs) beautiful rise to (laughs) to a great job. But it is just filled with indignity and and horrors. I mean, it was a horror show. I can't believe I got on the Daily Show. It's the best luck I've ever had. Let's talk about your, your work on the Daily Show. Um, we we've had a few Daily Show correspondents uh, on the show over the years, and um, I I think to a person uh, they have been um, they've expressed a kind of uh, a, a kind of fear that never quite leaves them about doing field pieces. Oh, sure. Yeah, they're terrifying. Oh, God. This has been in in part your specialty. In fact, I want to play a little bit of a field piece that you did. This is you talking to uh, unlikely environmentalists from the hunting and uh, we'll call it the natural resources industries on The Daily Show. Okay. But the oil and gas companies say they're the true green conservationists. Do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Yes, I, I do consider myself an environmentalist, just like I consider overwhelming majority of the men and women in the oil and gas industry as environmentalists. So you're just another one of those tree-hugging, wildlife-loving, nature-appreciating oil and gas executives. But I, uh, you have to understand, natural gas is a clean-burning fuel. So if you're asking me, is drilling for gas good for the environment? I tell you, absolutely it is. Just how good is gas drilling for the environment? Ask Tweety Blancet, who allowed gas drilling on her ranch. The oil and gas company allow contaminant spills. On our ranch, we have found dead elk, dead mule deer, um, dead coyotes. 
Is your ranch anywhere near the Hidden Valley? Um, I'm sorry, I don't know where the Hidden Valley is. The Hidden Valley Ranch? Was it and is it scary for you to do these pieces? I mean, not necessarily fearing for yourself physically, but is it difficult to ask people just profoundly, astonishingly stupid or embarrassing questions? It can be. It can be very terrifying. Um, If you feel in your heart that the person is, and you know, if you feel that the person is perhaps a, going to be an innocent bystander, you know what I mean? Like if yeah. the person doesn't really have, they're not taking a crazy position on something, they're just participating in something that is kind of beyond their understanding, then definitely it happens from time to time. But lots of other times we talk to people who should know better and lots of other times we talk to people who take absolutely heinous positions on things. And I have no qualms about that whatsoever. Then I just, you know, I hit the the gas pedal and go. I'm actually supposed to speak to someone later this week who is just horrendous. And I can't wait. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I'm kind of excited because... There in no I in no way will I feel guilty about speaking to this person. Does it change the way that you watch uh, the kind of the kind of news piece that you're uh, lampooning on the Daily Show? It does. It does. It has changed. You know, it has changed uh, significantly over the years. It has it changed a lot, actually. But. Um, I still very much enjoy watching. I still very much enjoy watching people who are doing the job that I'm lampooning. <laughs> lampooning. <laughs> I appreciate their hard work. I appreciate <laughs> their hard investigative work. Um, I don't enjoy, you know, I watched a documentary the other day, which I just detested. And that's kind of hard because I detested it for reasons that I don't think it would have bothered me beforehand. But I found it very manipulative. In a funny way, I mean, you are in lampooning something, as is often the case in satire, um, you are essentially trying to create the ultimate example of it, the sort of perfect distillation of its characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, must, it, it must make it almost more impactful to, to see that thing done really well, whether it's, you know, in that piece where you're talking to the uh, the unlikely environmentalists, mm-hmm. there's this moment where uh, where the hunter guy is shooting a shotgun just off into space, I think, mm-hmm. and um, and then the camera sort of pans out, and you're crying a single tear. Right, right. Um, do, do you find that it changes the way you see like those those like hyper emotional moments that are at the core of? so many uh so much television journalism well it does in in you know but if the rest of the piece is done very well then i have to you know i have to admire those who are doing the real work of of documentary you know of documenting real news stories i'm not gonna i can't take anything away from the people who actually go to those places and do those you know and are intrepid you know some are better than others let's just leave it at that it's the sound of young america i'm jesse thorne my guest is The Daily Show correspondent, Samantha B. Her new memoir is called I Know I Am, But What Are You? 
Here she is in a recent segment on The Daily Show as a reporter skeptical of the federal government's 2010 census operation. The government would have you believe that filling out the census form is a civic duty. But scores of Americans from all sides are saying no. From the left... The Reverend Miguel Rivera says undocumented workers should boycott the census. To the right... This violates the right to privacy. To whatever this is. They use the U.S. census information to round up the Japanese and put them in the internment camps. So I sat down with census director Robert Groves to ask him some questions of my own. Make me trust you. Well, it's a good Because it's a good I point. don't typically trust people with mustaches. Some census protesters say the solution is in the past. I go back to the founders. Mm-hmm. And the founders of our Constitution and the writers of our Constitution said you shall enumerate the people, not ask them all other kinds of questions. The first 1790 uh, census asked only... Who are you? Where do you live? And, of course, they asked how many slaves you had. <laughs> they did ask how many slaves you had. But, uh, but that's all they ask. And because they understood that liberty is the most important asset a man has. We're all equal under the law. When government... Except for slaves. Pardon? Except for slaves. Yes, unfortunately so. And women. I'm not going to get into that with you. That was an excerpt of a piece from my guest, Samantha B that appeared on The Daily Show this year. So uh, later on in that segment, uh, there's a cameo appearance from Jason Jones, who is uh, not only also a Daily Show correspondent, but your husband. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, not, not so much whether you guys get to work together or what it's like to work together, but do you even get to hang out with each other when you're at work? Well, we do. We actually share an office. We share oh. an office. It's so adorable. It's, you're going to vomit, really. <laughs> um, we share an it office. It has a little oven so you can make pies. We make pies, obviously. We make He's got a little love. wood shop in there. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> it's actually really nice for us because, well, there are many days when we don't see each other at all, when I'll be shooting for a couple of days at the end of this week he's shooting today so i'll go into the office later today i won't see him um but it is nice for us when we can both be there because we can have normal adult conversations kind of away from our away from our children it's nice to be able to talk to stuff and not have to you know be picking up spaghetti off the wall <laughs> while you're doing it it makes sort of it makes life easier when we get home we don't have to reconnect we're already connected we can walk home from work. We obviously hold hands. Jason <laughs> serenades me. It's very beautiful. Um, for much of your run on The Daily Show, you've you've been the only uh, female field correspondent on the show. I wonder if, especially in your on-camera role, mm -hmm. um, you think that the the things that you can do comedically as a woman, I mean, uh, besides the obvious, like uh, doing, uh, you know, doing a joke about being pregnant, um, which you are very, very pregnant at boy, the moment. Boy, oh boy. No and kidding. Con congratulations for that. Thank you. If you don't talk about it in these field pieces, it's just like a giant, it is literally <laughs> like a giant baby elephant in the room that's sitting on my chest. Um, no, you can't ignore it. 
But I wonder, you know, like as I was watching these field pieces and stuff, I wondered if there's stuff that you think where you can utilize the fact that you're a woman and that maybe your subjects relate to a woman differently or um, or, or things like that. If there are ways that being a woman gives you uh, uh, more or, or different tools comedically. I think it does. And I'm happy to exploit really in the context of an interview. I will exploit any aspect of myself that I'm required to <laughs> that will help me make a better interview happen. I have no qualms about it whatsoever. I think some people are more comfortable speaking to a woman. Some people are less comfortable speaking to a woman. And both of those things can be used to your advantage. But it's not unlike people who are more comfortable speaking to a man or less comfortable speaking to a man. I mean, you're using what you're using the tools in your arsenal. I feel like Jason, for example, gets away with some stuff or I feel like because some of his interview subjects want to compete with him. Do you know what I mean? Like they get his male interview subjects want to seem cool in his presence, want to seem like a player in his presence. So he uses that. And in my case, uh, people constantly want to flirt with me because I'm so attractive. Well, no. I'm joking. Um, But, you know, there's a different energy when a woman walks into the room. Um, Some people don't take you seriously because you're a woman who has entered the room. They don't think that you're going to ask them tough questions. Uh, Some people are more afraid of you. It really, you just, in this situation, it's such a free-for-all. And we're all trying to get the best jokes that we're all using every every possible uh, aspect of ourselves to make a joke happen. You've been doing this job now for um, seven years or so. Uh, I wonder what you think you've gained from doing it and what skills you're, you're most proud of developing over that time. Well, I'd like to point out that prior to doing The Daily Show, I was a costume character at a fall fair. So (laughs) to say that I've gained a lot by coming to The Daily Show is really the understatement of the century. (laughs) I've gained a lot in every way. You're one of the rare people whose on-camera character uh, was actually an increase in dignity over their previous (laughs) acting job. Yes, by far. Um, And well, what is well? I've taken away. I've taken away a lot. I've had access to things that there's no. I have no credentials. I have no reason <laughs> to have had amazing access to people. Um, I've I've learned so much about. I've learned so much about just people in general, and of course the political system and all of that has been very interesting to me because I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian by birth. So having a real, a truly behind-the-scenes glimpse at your American political system has been, it has been incredible. I mean, really. I've, ta- I've spoken to so many people who should never have spoken to me. It's been delightful. <laughs> <laughs> truly delightful. Well, Samantha, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the Sound of Young America. It was, really, uh, it was really great to have you on the show. It was just a pleasure to be here in every way. Samantha B. is the senior, senior correspondent on The Daily Show. Her new book of uh, essays of remembrance. No, oh, I like that. That sounds like it's about dead people, though. That's <laughs> the only problem I realized after I said that. Essays of remembrance. <laughs> and they're funny! Is called I Know I Am. But what are you? 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White, our associate producer, Julia Smith. Christian Natividad is our intern. My dog's name is Coco. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.